I love angry women because angry women are free. Reading is a collaboration between the writer and the reader. If Michelle Obama had natural hair, Barack Obama would not have won. Biblioteket er det originale internet. Det er det, jeg We need this Europe. And that's why we have libraries. Knowledge. Knowledge is power. Det her er live for det kongelige bibliotek. Stedet, hvor vi samler alt det bedste fra vores livescene her på Den Sorte Diamant. Din vært, Marie-Louise Madelung. Sommeren er for længst skyllet ind over landet, og vores podcast, som du lytter til lige nu, live fra det Kongelige Bibliotek, går på sommerferie lige om lidt. Men det betyder jo selvfølgelig ikke, at du skal snydes for en sommerspecial. For jeg har været i arkivet og fundet nogle klip frem fra nogle af de helt vildt ekstraordinære besøg, vi har haft i år i dronningssalen her på Den Sorte Diamant, som jeg tænker, at vi skal lytte til sammen. Så synes jeg, at vi skal starte med at lytte til Leila Slimeli og nogle af de erfaringer, hun har gjort sig, som hun har taget med i sit forfatterskab. Det, der er så skønt ved Leila, som du muligvis også vil opleve i klippet, det er, at hun er utrolig ærlig i sit sprog. Og Mathias Dressler Bredstorff, som også er med på scenen, han har fundet et citat frem for en af hendes bøger, som har ramt ham på en helt særlig måde. Og det har ligesom givet anledning til at snakke om moderskabet og hvordan Leila selv oplevede det at blive mor. Prøv en gang at lytte med. I was struck by, by one of the phrases in the book. Uh, Paul at one point saying, thinking to himself that, quote, the universe got smaller when I had the children. And very... You know, normally you think of it's an enlargement of the universe. Suddenly, it, it seems more. There's Miriam, of whom we hear that quote. She prefers to watch her children through the lens of her iPhone, where they become the world's most beautiful landscape. And I thought there was something so. Uh, of course, as a parent also, and and seeing others, I I I know it. I see it, but just this 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 idea that she's. She's kind of so out of it that at once they're beautiful, but she's introducing a kind of non-beauty in that world. She's she she wants play actors. Yeah, but um, that's all the ambiguity about being a parent and all the ambiguity that come with motherhood. Uh, people think, and I remember when I was pregnant of my first child, what people told me: mm. "Oh my God, it's so great and so beautiful. You will never feel alone again, and you will see this love. It's going to fulfill you. And oh, the day you're going to give birth, the best day of your life, the worst day in my life." I don't understand people who say, oh, we'll never forget. I want to forget <laughs> this experience. Thank you. And um, yeah, and you think that all the moments you are going to spend with your children are going to be beautiful and easy and that you're going to forgive them anything. You're never going to be annoyed by the fact that they vomit on you and that they yell and they scream and they don't want. And, and the truth is that it's not like that. Sometimes you're with them in the apartment and they are bored and they uh, they don't want and they yell and you just want to, to go out and you just want to be alone. You just want to scream to tell them shut up. Mm. And uh, you, I think that we have the right to say that. It doesn't mean that, of course, that you don't 
love your children, you love them very much. But I think also that in our societies where people want to control everything, uh, it's very difficult to be with children. Children, mm. you can't control them. You can't decide for them that they are going to be, you know, especially those couples of Bobo in Paris, they, they have perfect children who eat vegetable, who, whose names are very weird, Théodore, uh, Théophile, or I don't know. <laughs> Uh, is it, uh, because it's very classy, blah, blah, and they play violin and they, they are very nice, but real children are not like this all the time. No. And if you want your children to be like this, it's better to look at them on the iPhone, I think. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, the, the couple almost made me think of uh, the couple in Georges uh, Perec's uh, Les Choses Things. You know, this, they're, they're kind of, they're very detached from the world, but uh, they, they want to interact, but they, they can't really. It's almost as if parenthood was sometimes kind of described as a, as a, as a kind of mourning. No, yeah, and there is something about this in the book, because you know when you give birth to a child, when you become a parent, at the same time it's the beginning of a new thing, there's mm -hmm. this idea of, of birth and it's beautiful, but there is also a mourning. Yet there is also something that dies in you. Mm. The older you will never exist again. When you become a mother, and it was the fact for me, for instance, I think that the first feeling that I had was fear. Mm. The first thing that I had was fear. The first time I looked at my child, I was worried. What is going to happen to him? And if I'm not here anymore, who is going to take care of him? Is he cold? Is he hungry? Is he okay? And I know that I will be worried for my children until the day I die. That's something that I will never go back to the old girl, the old Leila that existed mm. before, to the girl who could have a whole day without thinking of something that could happen to, to her children. So yes, there is a morning, there is something that dies in you. And I think that's what we call in French, l'insouciance. Det næste klip, jeg har fundet frem, er for den gang, vi fik besøg af Chimamanda Adichie. Det, der er så fedt ved at lytte til Chimamanda, det er, at hun er så utrolig kompromilløs. Og det vil du muligvis høre i det klip, jeg har fundet frem, fordi der fortæller hun om en oplevelse, hun havde for nogle år tilbage, hvor hun mødte en tidligere fan, og hvordan hun ligesom håndterede den situation, og hvordan man bare generelt ikke skal bekymre sig for meget om folk, der ikke kan lide en. Med på scenen, der har vi også Musa Mchangame, som er med til at lede samtalen. I like to tell a story about this young man in Lagos who at an event I did years ago and he he said to me, um, I really used to like you when you just wrote novels. I loved purple hibiscus." <laughs> and then he says, "But when you started talking about this feminism thing and this gay thing, I stopped liking you. And then he went on to ask me, what do you plan to do to make me start liking you again? Right. I, and I think he meant, you know, you need to shut up about gay rights and feminism. And <laughs> I think this was just about the time when the Nigerian government had passed this horrendous law that makes it criminal to be gay. Yeah. Which still stands in Nigeria, by the way, right? And so I'd written ab about it and you know, really just wanted to let people know how just immoral this was. And so I think this guy wanted me to say, I don't know, maybe that I take back what I wrote or something. Mm. <laughs> so I said to him, you know, yeah, keep your like, right? I right. don't need it. But, but the point is, um, 
and, and not necessarily to appeal to people like that young man, but to say that, of course, if I didn't talk about certain things, um, it would be easier. Yeah. But I wouldn't sleep so well at night. There we go. Mm -hmm. Is that something then, because I remember in, your, um, in the Feminist Manifesto with 15 suggestions mm -hmm. that you've written to your, uh, to your, to your friend yeah. who's asking you how to raise her kid feminist, one of those suggestions is realize that someone will not like you. Yes. <laughs> Does that come from that, from that <laughs> incident? I think, no, from many other incidents. Right. Um, oh, no. I, you know, I was, when I think about it now, even as a child in primary school, and you know, I have to be fair and say that looking back, I can see how I could conceivably have been an annoying child. <laughs> right? That was very diplomatic. However, <laughs> so, you know, I would ask questions and mm -hmm. teachers would respond and I would be like, no, that's a bit too simple. And I would push and teachers would get annoyed. And, and you know, I, I imagine now, I, I can see, you know, this really annoying little twat who just will not stop. And so I think I learned very early on <laughs> that not everybody will like you and that it's okay. You know, it really is okay. I, I think this is something particularly for women, um, where we're, we're raised as, as, you know, from the, when you're a little girl, not only to be nice, and, but also to think that you need to always please people, and you always need people to like you. And you don't. So when I talk to young women, I say to them all the time, somebody will like you. You know, the world is diverse, and somebody will like you. And, and also, I, I say to them, think about yourself as a person who can like and dislike. It's not just that you're an object that, oh, he likes. No, you can also dislike them. So, you know, my thing is, if you don't like me, I don't like you, right? And so it's nobody's loss. Yeah. No, I, yeah. <laughs> but no, but really, I mean, I don't want to sound too glib. Um, it's not, obviously, I'm not suggesting that it's easy to deal with knowing that there's negativity directed at you. It's never easy, right? But I think, um, you know, you kind of think about what matters, again, for me. And so it matters to me where the negativity is coming from and why. So this young man who says, I don't like you because you talk about gay rights and feminism, I actually don't care about his liking me. You know, it doesn't matter to me. There are times when, um, you know, being disliked by a certain sort of group or people can hurt a bit more because Sometimes when it's your tribe doing the disliking, it can be hurtful. But still, you know, you kind of know that you sleep well at night, and I think it makes up for it. I think, I think maybe that's, that's a very important thing to, to take away as well in, in our conversation right here in Denmark. I think in, 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 in a Danish context or in a Danish culture at least, uncomfortability is something we have a very difficult time with. And so the sort of the pleasing thing, maybe especially for women, but obviously I can't talk on behalf of women, but maybe especially for women, but I think for, for, for society in general here, is a very difficult thing. It's very consensus-seeking all the time. We all have to agree. We all have to like each other. We all have to be merry and, you know, jolly and... And even, sorry to interrupt, no, but please. even sometimes the way, I, I think in addition to that, there's often an acceptable way of talking about difficult things. Yeah. And that itself can be very troubling. Yeah. So in the US, I'm often just deeply resentful and sort of, I just do not accept this idea that the story of race must always be one of progress. So um, in the US, both the left and the right 
They'll say, oh, look how terrible things are, but look how far we've gone. Let's celebrate that. And I'm thinking, no, you should never have been racist in the first place. You don't get a cookie, you know? Yeah. So, so this idea that... that <laughs> no, but really, it's true. <laughs> so I feel as though um, it's not just that we need to create room to talk about things. We also need to let go of that idea that there has to be one way to talk about it and that, that way has to end with everyone holding hands. You know, we can be uncomfortable and, and we have to make room for anger. Yeah, and maybe also realize that if we are talking about sort of a diversity of humans and of mm. existences and experiences, the goal isn't necessarily for all of us to be the same yeah. or to feel the same yeah. at the same time. Yeah. It is a goal in itself to be able to hold all of that yes difficulty at yes. the same time. Yes. I think you described that in Americana very well when you're, you're writing about how, uh, um, how Ifemelu is, 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 is making money off her blog and is starting to do sort of diversity work, speaking engagements, mm. talking about that, and people tell her she's racist, mm. and she realizes that they don't want to hear about injustice, they want to hear something that comforts themselves, yeah. which I think is so true for a lot of the, yeah. the conversations that are going on yeah. here as well. Vi bliver hængende lidt endnu sammen med Chimamanda, fordi et andet virkelig fint øjeblik var, da Musa han afslørede, at han faktisk havde givet Chimamanda lektier for. Og vi får lov til at opleve Chimamanda læse op for hendes måske mest kendte roman, Amerikaner. Det jeg også synes, der er virkelig skønt ved det her klip, det er Chimamandas egen reaktion på noget, hun har skrevet for måske mere end 10 år siden. Prøv selv at lytte med en gang. One thing, though, that I that I that I would ask you now that we've spoken about your work and we've spoken about um, sort of how you position yourself, is to ask you to read it for us a little bit, because um, I thought that would be nice. And um, this now that we have you here, and this little this this section from Americana um, is. And I've I've readily pointed it out for you already. Um, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a section, but I think it encapsulates a little bit what we've already talked about, yeah. and then what I would like to move further into. And just to give a little bit of context, we are um, we are sort of happening with Ifemelo, the main character, and her partner Kurt, um, and they are reflecting on race on uh, his white family, on experiences as such, and of blackness in culture. Okay, I should say that I haven't read this in years, and so... So it when, might be fun. <laughs> when Musa gave me the homework um, backstage, I looked at it and I thought, my goodness, I wrote that. Anyway, <laughs> so... And yet, once they visited his aunt Claire in Vermont, a woman who had an organic farm and walked around barefoot and talked about how connected to the earth it made her feel. Did Ifemelo have such an experience in Nigeria? She asked and looked disappointed when Ifemelo said her mother would slap her if she ever stepped outside without shoes. <coughs> Claire talked throughout the visit about her Kenyan safari, about Mandela's grace, about her adoration for Harry Belafonte, and Ifemelu worried that she would lapse into Ebonics or Swahili. As they left her rambling house, Ifemelu said, 
I bet she's an interesting woman if she would just be herself. I don't need her to over-assure over me that she likes black people. And Kurt said it was not about race. It was just that his aunt was hyper-aware of difference, any difference. She would have done the same exact thing if I had turned up with a blonde Russian, he said. Of course, his aunt would not have done the same thing with a blonde Russian. A blonde Russian was white, and his aunt would not feel the need to prove that she liked people who looked like the blonde Russian. But Ifemelo did not tell Kurt this because she wished it were obvious to him. When they walked into a restaurant with linen-covered tables and the host looked at them and asked Kurt, table for one? Kurt hastily told her the host did not mean it like that. And she wanted to ask him, how else could the host have meant it? When the strawberry-haired owner of the bed and breakfast in Montreal refused to acknowledge her as they checked in, a steadfast refusal, smiling and looking only at Kurt, she wanted to tell Kurt how slighted she felt. Worse, because she was unsure whether the woman disliked black people or liked Kurt. But she did not, because he would tell her she was overreacting or tired or both. There were, simply, times that he saw and times that he was unable to see. She knew that she should tell him these thoughts, that not telling him cast a shadow over them both. Still, she chose silence, until the day they argued about her magazine. He had picked up a copy of Essence from the pile on her coffee table on a rare morning that they spent in her apartment, the air still thick with the aroma of the omelettes she had made. This magazine is kind of racially skewed, he said. What? Come on, only black women featured? You're serious, she said. He looked puzzled. Yeah. We're going to the bookstore. What? I need to show you something. Don't ask. Okay, he said, unsure what this new adventure was, but eager, with that childlike delight of his, to participate. She drove to the bookstore in the inner harbor, took down copies of the different women's magazines from the display shelf, and led the way to the cafe. Do you want a latte? He asked. Yes, thanks. After they settled down on the chairs, paper cups in front of them, she said, let's start with the covers. She spread the magazines on the table, some on top of the others. Look, all of them are white women. This one is supposed to be Hispanic. We know this because they wrote two Spanish words here. But she looks exactly like this white woman, no difference in her skin tone and hair and features. Now I'm going to flip through page by page and you tell me how many black women you see. Babe, come on, Kurt said, amused, leaning back, paper cup to his lips. Just humor me, she said. And so he counted. Three black women, he said finally, or maybe four. She could be black. 
So, three black women in maybe 2,000 pages of women's magazines, and all of them are biracial or racially ambiguous, so they could also be Indian or Puerto Rican or something. Not one of them is dark. Not one of them looks like me. So, I can't get clues for makeup from these magazines. Look, this article tells you to pinch your cheeks for color, because all... <laughs> I'd really forgotten that. <laughs> this article tells you to pinch your cheeks for color because all their readers are supposed to have cheeks you can pinch for color. This tells you about different hair products for everyone, and everyone means blondes, brunettes, and redheads. I am none of those. And this tells you about the best conditioners for straight, wavy, and curly. No kinky. See what they mean by curly? My hair could never do that. This tells you about matching your eye color and eyeshadow. Blue, green, and hazel eyes. But my eyes are black, so I can't know what shadow works for me. This says that this pink lipstick is universal. But they mean universal if you're white, because I would look like a gollywog if I tried that shade of pink. <laughs> oh, look, here's some progress. An advertisement for foundation. There are seven different shades for white skin and one generic chocolate shade. But that is progress. Now, let's talk about what is racially skewed. Do you see why a magazine like Essence even exists? Thank you. Jeg tænker, vi hopper lidt videre og placerer os midt i den pro-salon, som musiker og kunstner Lydmor afholdte her tilbage i februar. Det var blandt andet en aften fyldt med kloge ord og en søgen efter at forstå mesterværket på sporet af den tabte tid af Marcel Rus. Det klip, vi skal lytte til, er med en af de gæster, som Lydmor har inviteret med op på scenen. Nemlig Neil Asli Conrad, som har beskæftiget sig en hel del med Marcel Rust. Og et af de spørgsmål, som Lydmor brænder ind med til Neil, er, om han forstår mere, efter han har læst på sporet af den tabte tid. Prøv en gang at lytte efter, hvad han svarer til det. Forstår du mere nu end dengang? Det er jeg meget nysgerrig på, fordi at på en eller anden måde så føles det, som om det er en uendelig rejse indad. Ja. Føler du, ved, ved du mere om pusten nu, end du gjorde det, da du altså... var færdig med den første gang? Altså, det, 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 det gør jeg jo selvfølgelig, altså, men, men det, har, det har jo noget at gøre med... Altså, spørgsmålet er, hvem er det, jeg kender? Mm. Fordi, altså, introducerende ganske kort vil jeg sige, at jeg har den grundopfattelse, at brugsromanen, det, det er ikke en biografi. Det er, den har råd i hans biografi, men det er en... Du havde metafor, for eksempel, i din tekst. Altså, det er ligesom mellemrummet, det er et... En anden verden. Det er en, man kan sige, romanen er en mellemverden imellem Marcel Proust og hans fortæller. 
Og imellem det, det er der allerede på første side, hvor man ikke kan sove, det er jo også alle sammen, han holder sig på vågen på vegne af. Altså han holder sig jo, altså han havde sindssygt svært ved at sove, og så vendte han rundt på, på døgnene, fordi han fik en, nu går jeg lidt op i tempo, altså en, 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 en astmasygdom, en kvælningsanfald i Bois de Bologne, som var ved at tage hans liv. Og som han skriver om i romanen, fortælleren har den her kvælnings, de her kvælningsanfald. Og, og det, det der i virkeligheden, det man i virkeligheden finder ud af der, når, når man ligesom øh, finder ud af, at forfatteren er ikke jaret i romanen, så begynder man, som jeg sagde allerførst, når man hører, og jeg var det, jeg læste. Så skifter man også selv jeg, når man læser. Og det vil sige, så, så går man ind på, uden at være med på præmisserne, ind på en slags forvandlingsforvandlingspræmisser. Ligesom af, som man kan sige det sådan, at hvis forfatteren nu siger, at jeg er indtrykket, der vi forvandler sig, så er det sandheden om brugst. Og det tror jeg, alle mennesker er i hans forståelse af at være moderne mennesker. Mm. Jeg tror, det var derfor, Yves Saint Laurent elskede ham så højt, fordi at købte hans møbler for eksempel. Øh, simpelthen for, for, for at være tryg i selvforandringen. Ja. Fordi det, som er måske er ro for os, var uro for brust. Og uroen var den eneste ro for ham. Så derfor bliver sætningerne, når man læser dem, og læser værk, altså bind for bind for bind, ind igennem aristokratiet, som han jo følger, det kunne vi jo høre i Bermas inden. Øh, han, han blev jo en livsamatør. Han fik den her kvælningssygdom. Øh, så han i perioder må ligge, og simpelthen øve sig i at trække vejret, og, og ikke kan, kan gå i skole. Simpelthen bare overleve dagen. Så senere begynder han at vende døgnet rundt, for overhovedet at kunne, altså simpelthen kunne have et, et tilfredsstillende altså, altså gennemtræk i, sin, i sit fysiske liv. Mm. Så han var konstant syg. Men jeg ved også, og, fordi du har jo researchet både sådan konteksten, han eksisterer ja. for, og, og, og hvad han skriver sig ind i, og det er, egentlig, det er noget, jeg var virkelig sådan, det skulle jeg nu spørge dig om, den her med, hvad er det, hvad, hvordan så den litterære verden ud, da han skrev på sporet? Hvad var det for en, en, en virkelighed, han skrev sig ind i? Altså, han skriver sig jo ind i en, en virkelighed, han har oplevet. Altså, mm. helt konkret, han har oplevet det, det af bourgeoisiet og, og adelskulturen, men han læste uafbrudt, ja. holdt seks aviser og orienterede sig langt, langt bagud, og han ville jo skrive øh, altså, det, tusinder en nat, en ny version af den. Så her har man allerede fornemmelse af, af, det, af, af, af længden og, og strækket. Ikke? Og hvordan så litteraturen ud? Havde, altså, var han en del af en bølge? Svarede han på noget, der skete, eller var det bare sådan lyn? Sådan han var en del, han var en del af, af, den, af, af Saint-Simon og de, altså de, store, altså de store franske forfattere, Balzac og Hugo, og, men især også Baudelaire senere hen. Men, men, og, og Montaigne, fordi der er, der er mange essay-træk hos ham. Det er jo halvt halv indimellem, i hvert fald tredjedel essay og, og, og halvvejs roman. Så, så på den måde er romanen i sig selv en bastard, ikke? Den er, den er uhåndterlig, fordi han er faktuel omkring nogle ting, og fiktiv i forhold til de, til de konkrete personer. Der er fiktive forfattere, og der er faktiske forfattere. Dostoyevsky er der. Altså klods op af, at den fiktive forfatter bliver godt. Mm. Derfor er der hele tiden to. Det er det, jeg mener. Altså der er hele tiden øh, nogen, som han udveksler med og diskuterer med, fordi han vil undersøge noget nyt. Nyt tema. Sjælusi, ensomhed, forstillelse, løgn, 
øh, bedrageri, øh, øh, omgangsformer, samtaleformer. Så på den måde bliver brugstromanen sådan nogle, altså en slags prisme, eller med, som jeg siger, sådan, jeg ser det mere og mere sådan kubistisk, på at se på billedet på gulvet. Og altså forstændig <laughs> som om, at det, det er sådan nogle kredsende mønstre, men de bevæger sig. Mm. Så, så alle sætningerne bevæger sig i forhold til hinanden, som jeg er senere kommet til at opleve det, når jeg underviser i det, og så er det prøve at formidle og give indblik i, hvordan det er en maskine, som er gjort af små indre maskiner, som belyser hinanden, altså som prismer. Så helt konkret, når jeg læser noget i dag af Proust, bliver det ved med at være nyt. Når jeg trækker det ud af regionen, når jeg skal forberede mig til den næste gang, jeg skal undervise min læsekreds, så betyder det nye sætninger. Ja. Det er de samme sætninger, og det er nye fra en ny vinkel, fordi jeg ved noget andet. Eller jeg har gjort noget andet og fået nogle nye erfaringer. Det er samme oplevelse, jeg har. Altså fuldstændig. Altså, jeg, jeg skulle læse lidt igen. Jeg havde haft en lille pause for Proust, inden jeg skulle der. Men altså, ligesom at vende tilbage i det, så er det sådan en sanselighed, der dukker op. Og på den måde bliver han en ven. Fuldstændig. Midt i ens kaos. En ven, man kan godt have det lidt ambivalent med nogle gange. Absolut. Altså, han har jo ikke ret. <laughs> Og nogle gange har han. Hvad <laughs> fanden så? Jeg må desværre melde, at jeg kun har et klip tilbage fra mit lille arkiv. Men jeg vil selvfølgelig anbefale, at hvis du ikke allerede har lyttet til mange af vores podcast, at du bliver her på podcast-siden og går ind og finder hele samtalen med mange af de her helt vildt fantastiske gæster, som vi får besøg af her i Dronningsengen. Men det sidste klip, vi skal lytte til sammen her, det er med intet mindre end Nobelprisvinderen Abdul Rajak Gøner, som en hel aften sammen med Carsten Jensen virkelig fik nørdet meget af Abdul Rajaks forfatterskab. Og det er faktisk også det, vi skal dykke lidt ned i her med det sidste klip. For på selve aften så afslørede Abdul Rajak, at to af hans bøger, The Last Gift og Paradise, faktisk er forbundet. Og der er en helt særlig scene beskrevet i begge bøger, som bliver gentaget. Men her der får du lov til at høre ham selv beskrive, hvordan det egentlig er, at de to bøger hænger sammen. You'll notice if you read both books, you'll notice that the, there is a link between them. Um, and the link is... Um that these two young innocents, as it were, he, who becomes the father, Abbas, in The Last Gift, and who's the absent father there, uh, is a poor student, and he lives in a little cubby hole, or whatever, and as he looks across the neighbor's house, he sees uh, this also quite young, beautiful young girl, Um, and he secretly watches her and sort of, as one does, and imagines, fantasizes and this kind of thing. Um, I hope you haven't forgotten about that. When he used to do those kind of things. Um, and one day he actually sees that while she's out there, she takes a shift off as she's getting ready to go to bed and he actually sees her. And he thinks at, at some point the the merchant, the, the patriarch, glances towards his little cubbyhole and thinks he sees him. Um, so he thinks he's been spotted and he's terrified that he's been spotted. And then to his astonishment, um, he's, um, through various means, um, and a, and a marriage is arranged between this young woman and, her, and this young fella. Wonderful. So these two young people 
what they have is just that pleasure of uh, kind of being young, falling in love, discovering themselves, their bodies, their sexuality, etc., etc. Um, but he's in, now living in a, the home of very powerful people. And she's very quickly pregnant, and he begins to have these anxieties had he been, in fact, as he were, recruited to cover up a shameful thing that had happened to this, uh, this uh, girl. And in his own terror and anxiety and shame, he runs away. Because he thinks whatever he thinks, rightly or wrongly. That's how he decides to do this. Anyway, so off he goes. Uh, and then the rest of Admiring Silence is really about, uh, as we've already seen, the, uh, the person who's in England, who's in a relationship with a young woman, who returns and then hears a version of this story from his mother. But in all of this, of course, we don't know what happened to that man who ran away to escape what he thought was uh, some kind of uh, trap that he'd been caught in. I thought about this for a long while after writing Admiring Silence and things go on and you do other things. But I remembered a conversation I had at the time when um, Paradise was shortlisted for the booker. Because that, when that happened, that was a time when I'd written three books by then, which had been reviewed here and there, and but you know, not not um, not um, very successful. Neither none of those three books made it into paperback even in those days. Uh, no, honestly, you can't imagine the pain of that. But anyway, <laughs> um, some of us can easily imagine the pain yeah. of that. <laughs> Anyway, when Paradise was shortlisted for the booker, that made a great deal of difference to, to me and my writing because now people wanted to know and you know, they knew about me, etc. And I, I, was, I had a phone call at the university. Working in a university really kind of leaves you open to anybody who wants to find you. <laughs> you, can, you can't hide. These days, of course, emails, but anyway. In those days, it was telephone. So somebody phoned me and uh, said, um, I'm from Zanzibar, and um, I just heard that you are from Zanzibar and that your book is blah, 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 blah. And he said, amongst other things, he said, I've forgotten my language, I can't speak Swahili anymore. So I said, which I didn't really believe, I thought about it, but I didn't really believe that. Can you forget your language? But anyway, then he said, I left home when I was about 20 or so, um, I stowed away on a ship and I've never been back. I've been a sailor for forever and I've done this and I've done that. And I said, why did you leave? But I wasn't really interested. I was just asking, you know, why did you leave? I said, I can't tell you, I can't tell you. Anyway, good luck, goodbye. Fine, thank you. I was very busy, so I wasn't interested in kind of even thinking about this. I was very busy because, you know, booker, 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 you know. So, that kind of thing. But I did think about it for a while. And I guess I tried to imagine what might have happened to somebody like him. Um, so when I was, 
novels don't come for me anyway from one from one impulse alone. They're always kind of complicated things as well. Uh, I was also thinking about the way in which um, sometime around about 2007, there were these people who did the suicide bombings in London. I don't know if some of you may remember that. And one of the suicide bombers made a video, um, as sometimes suicide bombers do, to explain why he was doing what he was doing. It was passionate, it was really angry. And what he said was that he had been brought up, he, his parents were of uh, Pakistani ancestry. And he said that what, what, what he, uh, he was brought up by his parents in a secular environment. They didn't teach him about Islam. They brought him up to be an English boy. Um, and he felt he had, something had been taken away from him, that he'd been deprived of something important to him that he'd been denied something. That's why he's a Muslim, and that's why he's now gonna to go to London with a bomb in his backpack and blow people up, which of course doesn't make sense. But it made me think about how it is that uh, actions like that are done out of kindness, out of affection, out of kind of to protect uh, him from, you know, kind of alienation or estrangement or something, I actually, uh, seen in a different way by the person who feels denied of his you know, heritage as well. So those two things I was thinking of, um, amongst other things, but certainly those two things, which is why the family, um, the, boys and, the boy and girl who end up being, in fact, you know, kind of properly anglicized as were in members of the English society, uh, but they don't know their parents' stories. Um, <clears throat> So anyway, thinking about that, I remember that moment of the girl taking her shift off, um, and I thought, this is my man. This is the one who ran away. That man who rang me, that's who he is. So then I connected it by using, if you, if you read both books, you'll find that that scene of the girl taking off her shift being the moment when the, the boy loves this person is repeated in both novels as a way of, as it were, hinting that maybe this is a guy, <laughs> you know, maybe this is a fellow who, and that's a shame. So it's a different silence again. It's, it's a silence which is to do with a shameful act, a, an act that he cannot now speak about. Um, he doesn't think. And again, it's done like the parents of that man is done to save his children from uh, a shameful story. He is a good father, he loves his children. Why, need, why do they need to know this about him? So, different silences and they all have their own complicated, um, well, difficulties I suppose. Det var desværre alt, hvad jeg havde til dig i dag. Tusind tak, fordi jeg måtte låne din øre et lille stykke tid. Og jeg håber selvfølgelig, at vi lyttes ved en anden god gang. Og så har jeg lige en lille ting til. Torsdag den 25. august, så starter vores tilbagevendende sommerscene Bibliotekshaven Live her i København igen. Som altid, så er det fyldt med godt selskab og optræden for blandt andet skuespillere, musikere og digtere. Du kan eventuelt tjekke vores hjemmeside ud, kv.dk, og se, om der lige er noget, der falder i din smag. Uanset hvad, så synes jeg i hvert fald, det er en virkelig dejlig måde at bruge en sommeraften på her i København. 
Og jeg håber selvfølgelig, at du får verdens bedste sommerferie. Vi ses.